Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Hi, my name is Yitzi. Hi, everyone. My name is Yitzi, and I'm a sexaholic in Brooklyn, New York. And very grateful to be here, very grateful, you know, to be asked to do something like this, to be asked to do, to do anything when, you know, after the life I'd lived till now. But um, anyway, what did I, a few minutes before, before I got on the call, I got down on my knees and said a prayer because that's what I've been taught to do. That before, um, before speaking, I get down on my knees, say a prayer, and see what happens. And there's a part of me, there's the intellectual part of me that has so much book knowledge that, you know, that, that, um, that I need to kind of let go of and say, God, please speak your truth through me, whatever it is. And through, may the members of this group hear, you know, whatever they need to hear. And I, I didn't, I have some notes on the traditions, but I don't have, um, I didn't necessarily prepare like a whole choreographed speech. Um, anyway, but I wanted to first start, even before I do that, um, I wanted to first start quickly, um, just, um, what do you call it, to kind of, I, I spoke already twice on this, on this meeting about uh, whatever in general my story, and then a little more about like another version of my story six months later. And I just want to quickly share, I want to share like very briefly in like three, four, five minutes, because I think this is a powerful message that I have. Um, because I had a relapse after about a year and change. And I'm going to quickly share what I did afterwards to kind of get right back up and, um, and to, you know, to get back so that now, by God's grace, I have a little over seven months and I didn't like struggle much once I decided to surrender and throw down my guns again and say, God, I'm yours again. It was pretty much, in a way, it was smooth sailing. In a way, it taught me a lot of lessons about things. But I'll just, I'll just say very, very briefly that um, for me, it was very important. I had, um, had a program for like codependency or Al-Anon that I, you know, that I had the tools that I've used and know how to use for, for those kind of things because the overwhelming majority of my struggle after relapse was, oh, my God, what is everyone going to think of me, right? And I'm back to square one. That's number one. Number two, I had to let go of what I thought I knew although I had to start practicing the principles that I knew. I didn't, you know, I'm, in a way, I'm grateful for that. I didn't have to start from scratch, like as if I knew nothing in a way. In a way, I did it. In a way, I didn't. It was like the balance of, of practicing the principles, but coming as a newcomer, you know, in a way. Like my sponsor didn't have me start on the steps again. He just said, Yitzi, are you back? And, uh, you know, I, start, I got right back in with prayer and meditation. Um, the... I'll just quickly share the crazy story how I got sober. I was supposed to go act out with someone. And uh, 
it didn't end up working out. I went to a, I went to an Alman uh, a service conference and I acted out before because in order to go anywhere, do anything, when I'm not sober, that's what I have to do in order to be, you know, be able to be comfortable in my own skin. And I got home, was supposed to, I was supposed to meet up with this person. It didn't end up working out, thank God. And at, a little later that night, yeah, I was doing a whole bunch of, like, craziness. And, but I didn't physically act out, per se. Not that it makes a difference, but I was, like, drunk that whole night. And then towards the end of the night, I was about to go to sleep, like, need to wake up the next morning for work. It was, like, 2 a.m. And the thought came to mind, like, the first time in, like, a, a good couple of days, like, maybe you don't have to masturbate and watch pornography to go to sleep. And I just picked that little kernel of willingness, and I just said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And I did that. And I didn't have the power to do that. And I came to the next, next night to a meeting and I said, I'm sober and I don't know why the hell I am. And thank God I don't know. And, you know, and then I did a lot of inventory work around it and I, I sat with it. I processed it in lots of different ways. But I basically, what I realized, the main thing I realized is that I don't have a day, I don't have a day off of recovery. You know, my disease never takes a day off. So I can't take a day off my recovery. That's the main thing I learned. And I learned like to really be vigilant. Like to, to really, you know, to really be active and to really have a 10 and 11 practice because that's what anchors me to God. That's what anchors me to the fellowship. And that's what, to be able to be part of the fellowship in, in a meaningful way. That's what anchors me to, you know, whenever stuff happens, I have what to do about it. I don't have to sit there and brood or be upset. I have tools I can use. So anyway, that's just a little bit that I'm going to say, and then I'm going to jump into tradition. So I'm just going to say... There are two other, I believe there are two other recorded talks from Fridays that I did already on the traditions. I'm going to mention a couple of little points here and there. And I guess I'm going to, I don't know, see where God takes me with this. So I don't know. Again, bear with me. So um, my sponsor has a workshop on the traditions. That if anyone wants afterwards, I can send you a link to. Um, he has a, a full workshop on steps, traditions, and concepts. It took him two and a half years to record it. And um, so he has the notes that part, that's part of what I'm using and my own experience and stuff. So he, he, calls, he calls the 12 traditions the 12 biggest mistakes AA made in the early years. And, and um, you know, he basically, I, I was over the weekend, and I was in Toronto, I was, at a, I was at an AA conference, it was absolutely phenomenal. And I met with a close friend of mine over there who used to be my sponsor, and we were talking and he was telling me that at some point recently or something, he was in a meeting in Mexico, in an AA meeting in Mexico, and this guy who was about in, in his 90s, 93 or something, and he had been, he'd gotten sober in, in the 40s and he'd been to, to meetings with Bill, with Bill Wilson. And he said that, you know, the, you know there's, this, there's this myth or this, uh, you know, kind of thing that Bill had all these affairs with women and all this other stuff. And he said, it's largely, a, he, was a, he was an addict, like, you know, he was an alcoholic like any other alcoholic, and he struggled with some, with some issues, and he, he, may, he could be had some issues in this area, but he definitely didn't. Um, it wasn't to the extent that they blew it up. There was people in the fellowship that hated him because of the traditions, and they just blew up rumors about him. He said, I knew Bill, and Bill was the most humble person. He was always willing to admit he was wrong. He was always willing to hear guidance from others no matter what he thought. And, and, and when he gave over the fellowship in 1955, and we writes about the AA comes of age, Bill, Bill said, um, um, and it's recorded on tape, Bill said that you know, the fellowship is now 
safe even from me. You know, he had that humility about him, that he realized that he could, re- he could wreck this fellowship. When he gave the fellowship over to the general service board to be able to, you know, that they should be able to kind of run the fellowship through, through the groups and through group conscience and all that. You know, he said the fellowship is safe even from me. But um, I mentioned over there when I spoke, I'm not going to go into all the details, but I mentioned over there that there were, that, um, and I read off a document from like the 40s, from, the, from Little Rock, Arkansas, one of the groups that had like, it was, a, it was a group conscience. And the group thought that they were doing great with it, you know. And they had a whole bunch of these very rigid rules, like one strike, no problem, two strikes, okay, three strikes, you're out and you can't come back for a year, you know. If you, if, you, if you slip three times, um, every person is assigned two sponsors. It's a, it's a group of only men. And a whole bunch of these things that, you know, they made very rigid and they thought it was like Bill Wright's in, in the 12 and 12, I believe in step seven. I don't remember exactly that the good is the enemy is often the enemy of the best. And that means the, the good of what I think is sometimes the enemy of the best that God has in store for me. And with my mind, right, if I don't go with, with, with these traditions, if I don't go with this, the reason why traditions are so important is if I don't go with these as like part of my way of life, then, then um, number one, within the fellowship, and number two, without, outside the fellowship, because there's a very uh, destructive uh, thing going around in AA, and I think in SA probably also, that um, people say that the traditions, the steps are to the individual like the traditions are to the group. Or, or backwards, the traditions are to the group as the steps are to the individual. And what that tells me, or that tells the newcomer, is that the traditions have no application outside of the fellowship. And that's a, that's a straight-out lie, because the traditions can be applied anytime I'm dealing with one other person. I could use the concepts of the traditions, the spiritual principles. There are 36 spiritual principles in the program, not 12. 12 steps, 12 traditions, and 12 concepts. And 12 steps could be applied in my daily life. The traditions could be applied in my daily life. And the concepts, believe it or not, could be applied in my daily life. You know, I have to learn how to, how to, how to um, you know, how to apply them. That's a whole separate story. But the basic idea is that it's there. Um, anyway, um, the, there are a couple of little pieces about the traditions that in, in some AA literature that, that, um, that, I want, that I want to read to you that were very meaningful that it, it, it's, very, it's very interesting that um, the way the traditions are founded, because we're, we're a group, um, it says a bit later, I'll, um, well, I'll get to that soon, but it starts off um, in one of these, in, there's a booklet called AA Today that was published in 1960 by the Grapevine, and, uh, um, and it's also in Language of the Heart, page 225, it says the traditions are neither rules, regulations, nor laws, no sanction or punishments can be evoked for their infraction. Perhaps no, no other area in society would these principles succeed. Yet in this fellowship of alcoholics, the unenforceable traditions carry a power greater than that of law. And like it says, a bit late, like it says in other literature, the same idea. In, in A Comes of Age, page 118, it says, unless, unless each AA member follows to the best of his ability our suggested 12 steps of recovery, he most certainly signs his own death warrant. Drunkenness and disintegration are not penalties inflicted by people in authority. They are results of personal disobedience to spiritual principles. We must obey certain principles or die. The same threat 
applies to the group itself. Unless there's a proximate conformity to AA's 12 traditions, the group too can deteriorate or die. Now skipping a bit, it says, great suffering and great love are AA's disciplinarians. We have no others. Right? So that's, that's why the traditions are so important. If we don't, if at least for me, if I don't follow the traditions as a group member, then I could kind of cause the group to fall apart and, you know, and, and, uh, and dissolve. And then there's no group for the new person to come to if, you know, the group ends up falling apart. And, uh, yeah, and there's another, um, there's another very powerful quote from A Comes of Age, page 96. It says, pride and fear and anger, these are the primary enemies of our common welfare. True brotherhood, harmony, and love, fortified by clear insights and right to practices, are the only right answers, are the only answers. And the purpose of A's traditional principles is to bring these forces to the top and keep them there. Only then can our common welfare be served. Only then can A's unity be permanent. Right? The unity the, the, of the traditions that are supposed to unify the fellowship as a whole are supposed to be um, the, the only way, the only way, um, right, the only way to do that is to let go of pride, fear, and anger and to have brother in harmony and love. And uh, yeah, and yes, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of jump in now to tradition. I spoke a little bit on traditions one and two. I'm gonna speak a little more on two and then jump into three. Um, in tradition two, there's a very cool idea in P P43, which is a pamphlet on the traditions. It says A is both in page three. It says A is both a democracy and the Bill W's words of benign anarchy. A group of elected officers who have no power to order anybody to do anything. It's kind of funny, no? It's that, right, the, if the tradition too reads that for our group purpose there's but one ultimate authority, a loving God is to express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are our trusted servants they do not govern. And that's what that means, is that no one has the right to tell anyone to do anything, but the group conscience as a whole speaks. And Bill, and Bill, for example, the famous example in the 12 and 12 where Bill talks about his, uh, his stuff with, with um, he wanted to make a whole hospital and he had a whole grandiose plan on how he's going to be the therapist. And then he came to the group and the group's like, Bill, you're going to rip us apart. And Bill was humble enough to listen to the group and he didn't create that whole hospital, that whole, I mean, create a hospital and, and, uh, or, or actually Charles B. Towns where he got sober offered him a job as a lay therapist, and Bill said, and they said, no, we, we can't do that. That ties really into later traditions, but the basic idea here is that he, he believed that God spoke through the group conscience, and he didn't go and become that lay therapist, because it would kind of disrupt the whole, the whole AA power. But the group, right, the group elects its officers, and it says the same thing, says the same thing as, as well, and, and, and continuing on the same page, it says if a group wants to be part of the AA whole service, the whole AA service structure, it selects a GSR, a general service representative, with a two-year term. GSRs elect area committee members and then join them in electing a delegate from their area to their annual general service conference. The conference is about the closest approximation of a government that AA has, but neither the conference nor the board can give orders to any group or member. It's the same idea, right? The, the conference is just the collective AA. AARSA, uh, you know, service structure is an inverted triangle. The trustees, from a general sense, have the least amount of power, and the, the groups have the most amount of power, in a way, when it comes to changing things in the fellowship. 
that really ties more into the, the concepts, but the basic idea is there that it's, why is it that way? Because God talks through the group conscience, and then each group has a member, and then they have committees, and then that, it goes all the way up until, until uh, trustees and, and, and the service board and everything, whatever it's called, and those, those people are subservient to all the groups that they're under, to all the representatives that they're under, every person that represents a group whose part, you know, who every group represents a larger group, or, you know, so that, that, that's the idea. And beside that, there's another, there's another, um, there's another thing very powerful that it says on that page. It talks about the minority ideas get thoughtful attention. And my sponsor had this pow- very powerful story that he shares about his, uh, about this woman who came into to a meeting and she was like kind of new in recovery. And this was the only meeting she was able to make it to. And she had her child, she had a little child, and in the beginning, the group was voting, voted against having, I guess that group never had children, you know. If you ever go to AA, and if you, if you, if you, if you put it this way, if you've gone to an AA, to like an open AA meeting or a closed AA meeting, whatever AA meetings, and you haven't seen children around, and you haven't gone to, to enough AA meetings, you know, like, in, I, I, for obvious reasons in SA, they don't have that. But in AA, they, the, in AA, now not all the time, you have little kids coming. And, um, Apparently this group wasn't that way, but this group followed the traditions and they gave her, she was the only one, everyone else was opposed, but she got up and she spoke and she explained the situation that this is the only meeting she can make it to. She's earlier in her sobriety and the only way she can make it is if she could bring her kid with her. You know, it was like twice a week, that group, whatever it was. And the group basically turned around and it was a complete turnaround, unanimous, unanimous vote to let the kid in. And my sponsor says he's like the coolest thing to see over the years. This kid grew up in AA. And like, it was, a, you know, um, that's God talking through the group conscience. God, you know, and, and the minority could sometimes overwhelm, could, could sometimes ter- overturn the, the opinion of the majority. And that's why we let God talk as the final authority for the group conscience. Anyway, tradition to me, right? Tradition to me is the only requirement for AA membership rest, uh, is a desire to stop drinking. Or in essay, desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober, right? And the longer, in the longer form of the tradition, it, it adds on. Hence, we may refuse none. Who, it, it says our membership ought to include all itself from alcoholism or sexualism. Hence, we may refuse none who wish to recover. Nor would AA membership ever depend on money or conformity. Any two or three alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. And um, basically what that means is that in regard to, um, that means in regard to, in, in regard to groups, right, I, um, like I was mentioning before, a group can technically, it can be a men's only group, and if a woman shows up and she needs a meeting, you can't chase, you can't send her away. And uh, and um, that kind of thing, and um, and obviously never is, never depends on money or conformity. And there's the famous story that some of you probably know in the twelve and twelve that there was this there was this person who was a sexual deviant crossdresser, I believe, and they asked Dr. Bob, I think it was Dr. Bob that um, that the story happened with, and his his question his his question to the group was, what would the master do? You know, what would God have us do here? And they let him in because he had a desire to stop drinking. And um, 
and some of the some of the other um, literature talks about this um, here a, a, a little more a little more in uh, in depth. It says that a person here, if alcohol is an uncontrollable problem to him, this is P17, page 15. If alcohol is an uncontrollable problem to him, and he wishes to do something about it, that is enough for us. We are not, we care not whether his case is severe or light, whether his morals are good or bad, whether he has other complications or not. Our AA door stands wide open, and if he passes through it and commences to do anything at all about his problem, he's considered a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He signs nothing, agrees to nothing, promises nothing. We demand nothing. He joins, uh, he joins us on his own say-so. He doesn't even have to admit that he is an alcoholic. He can join AA on the mere suspicion that he may be one, that he may already show the fatal symptoms of the malady. So, and, and, uh, and like my sponsor always says in regards to this, he's like, the only requirement is a desire to stop drinking. So if someone comes in, you don't ask them if they're an alcoholic or even a sexaholic. Because how does the guy know? The guy doesn't know from beans. He doesn't know about the obsession of the mind, the allergy of the body, the spiritual malady. He has nothing. He just knows that he needs to stop drinking or in our case, stop acting out. And that's enough, right? And, and sometimes in, in AA what happens is that uh, people come in and they're like, oh, um, you have to say you're an alcoholic. And, you know, then my sponsor is like, you know, my sponsor happens to be most of the times introduces himself as powerless over alcohol. Because he says that was the based on this tradition, and that that was how the old timers used to introduce themselves. Some of the early old timers would say, "Hi, my name is whatever, and I'm powerless over alcohol." That, and 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 he said he's a member of Al-Anon, and he, he said it works in both fellowships because he can't go to Al-Anon and say he's an alcoholic. Because what happens if uh, last week this woman who's sitting next to him, her husband uh, punched her eye out? And she has a black eye now, and now he's the enemy because he's an alcoholic. But if he says he's powerless over alcohol, that's their first step as well. And he's a member because he has a problem of alcoholism in a family or friend. And um, anyways, the base, and then the, the other basic idea is that any two or three people gathered together, right? You don't even have to be technically part of an, a group or an intergroup or some kind of something. I can start my own group wherever I want and connected by having intergroup representative and whatever, as long as it doesn't affect other groups, which is going to be the next tradition. But I can basically start a, I can basically start a, um, um, I can start a group wherever I want. Any two or three people gather together, they could gather in someone's house and start a meeting, you know. And I know such a meeting is a meeting that I usually go to on Monday nights, an open AA meeting that started with four people in someone's house, and now there are over 100 strong. They're, they just celebrated their seventh anniversary with over 100 strong on a Monday night, and sometimes even more. And it's an, it's an amazing, solid group. Right? The, a group doesn't have to be that you have to be connected to previous groups that are there. You know, even in the same, within the same clubhouse, you can have a few different groups. They don't have to be, you know, they don't have to be exclusive. So, um, yeah, so that's on tradition three. Um, Dennis, do I, how much time do I got? Dennis, how much time do I got? Uh, you have, well, we're split, all our speakers are 20 minutes plus. So, you know, right around 20 to 30 minutes, and that gives people a chance to respond and ask questions. Right, okay. Yeah, I guess I'll stop here. Okay. 
I'll stop here. Thank you for letting me share. Um, yeah.